You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, today we mark our church's seventh anniversary, and we should indeed thank God and give Him glory for His faithful care and His abundant provision over these past years. And as we mark this anniversary today, we're going to do so by taking communion together, even though it isn't the last Sunday of the month, which is our normal custom. And it's appropriate that we do this, because communion is one of the most formative and uh, important events, a unifying act that, that we can do together as a church. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, because we all partake of the one bread. There's a tendency among many Christians today to see communion as something deeply individual and very introspective. And, and there are some reasons for that that are quite right, but we also need to understand that the New Testament tells us very clearly that communion is not just about us individually. Communion is also about us collectively. Because communion is a corporate act. It is a corporate proclamation of the death of Christ. And it is a corporate expression of our union with one another within the local church as a community that is founded upon Christ's death. And we see that as we all share from the one loaf. And so on a day like today, it's good for us to remember Jesus in this way that he instituted. And it's good for us to participate in this act of community formation and renewal together. Now today as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, we come to the 26th chapter. And we're going to look at verses 17 through 29. Again, I would invite you to turn there. And in our passage, we find the Last Supper of Jesus and the celebration of the first Lord's Supper. And in our passage today, we're going to learn three truths. First, the betrayal and death of Jesus will happen on Jesus' schedule. Second, the betrayal and death of Jesus happen in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And third the betrayal and death of Jesus, accomplish the saving plan of God and must therefore be regularly commemorated. So let's jump into our first point, which is that the betrayal and death of Jesus will happen on Jesus' schedule. In our last time together, we began looking at Matthew's passion narrative, his record of the last days of Jesus' earthly life that will culminate in his death on the cross. And we saw last time that preparations were being made for the death of Jesus. So the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council over Judaism, prepared a plot to kill Jesus. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, prepared Jesus for his burial by anointing his body with perfumed oil. And Judas has sold Jesus out and is preparing an opportunity to betray him. And now we find another preparation in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
Now, Matthew says it is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was a week-long Jewish festival that was all about the Jews getting every trace of yeast out of their homes. Leviticus 23 said that this feast was to begin the day after Passover, which was itself a very important religious holiday. But because Passover was the day before this week-long festival, people started viewing these two separate events as one big holiday. In fact, Jewish people still observe them like that today. Now, add to this the fact that Exodus 12 says that Jews had to purge the yeast from their homes before the first day of the feast, and you wound up with many people back then viewing the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as being the day before the Passover. Okay, and so that seems to be what Matthew is describing here as well. It is the day before Passover. And now the disciples come to Jesus and they ask about preparing the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal, which is called a Seder, is an intricate ceremonial meal that was eaten with particular foods that have historical symbolism. And so that is to tell us this is a meal that will take some planning. This isn't like you know, throw a frozen pizza in the oven. This is going to take some preparation. And the disciples are going to need a really big room where they can all gather together to eat it. And so the disciples go to Jesus and they say, where do you want us to go to get everything ready? Now, we might imagine that the disciples still have the luxury of time because we've said it's the day before Passover. But the disciples don't have as much time as we might think. Because in the Jewish calendar, days begin not in the morning, but in the evening. Now, for us in the West, this is very hard for us to wrap our minds around. But Jewish days begin in the evening. And so what that means is the day before Passover is not followed by the night before Passover. The day before Passover is followed by Passover. And so, in fact, as the sun sets on this very same day we're talking about, it's going to be time to eat the feast. We're just a few hours away. So the disciples had better get their hurry on, right? Now... You might remember that Jesus has said something significant is going to happen on this Passover. Back in chapter 26, verse 2, he said, The Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Passover is the day that Jesus must die. But the disciples aren't thinking about that. They have still not grasped that their master is about to die. Instead, they're just thinking about this meal. So they want to know where to go, and Jesus tells them. Look at verse 18. He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. These instructions seem a little strange, a little vague maybe. Who's this certain man, right? What's going on? Well, Matthew here is summarizing a more complex situation And we get a fuller record of this in Luke 22, beginning in verse 7. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So Jesus sends only John and Peter, his two closest and most trusted friends, on this curious assignment. 
They're to go into the city and meet a guy with a water jar. Now, that would be a noteworthy sight in first century uh, Jerusalem because back then the people that carried water jars were women. Men carried water pouches. They didn't usually walk around with water jars. But they're to meet this man who's doing this strange thing. And when they find him, Jesus says he's going to lead them to a house. And then when they go into the house, they're going to talk to the homeowner and they're supposed to say that Jesus says his time is at hand. Now, it's very unlikely this homeowner really grasps what it means that Jesus' time is at hand. Nobody around Jesus seems to really understand he's about to die. But apparently this homeowner has an interest in Jesus' ministry and a willingness to help. And Jesus says the homeowner will then show Peter and John into a guest room which has already been furnished for hosting Passover. What are we to make of all of this? Many people read these words and see in them a demonstration of Jesus' omniscience and his supernatural power. That Jesus foreknows about this man with this empty guest room that's just sitting there waiting to be used. And he sends his disciples on this errand to meet this man with a water jar, which he has providentially constructed this and this whole scenario to demonstrate his divine powers and show how he's in charge over everything. And certainly that's very possible. We see things like that elsewhere in the Bible, like when uh, Abraham's servant uh, goes and meets Rebekah back in Genesis 24. But honestly, what I think is happening here is not so much a demonstration of Jesus' supernatural power as it is his wisdom and his pre-planning. I think Jesus has already made arrangements with this homeowner for the Passover. He just hadn't told his disciples about it yet. That's why the upper room is sitting there already furnished waiting for him. But why has Jesus not told the disciples about his plans until this last minute? And why does he send them on this circuitous errand to find a guy carrying a water jar? You know, I think when we read these verses, there is something positively clandestine about this passage. It's like something out of a spy movie. The disciples don't know where they're supposed to go until the last minute. Only the two most trusted are sent. They meet a contact. They go to a safe house. The safe house has been made ready for them. I think Jesus has set this all up with the homeowner. But why? Because as we said last time, plans have been set in motion to arrest Jesus. Matthew 26, 4 says the Sanhedrin plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The authorities want to grab Jesus at some point when he's outside the public eye. They don't want to do it when he's at the temple during the daylight when there will be a crowd that might not like to see Jesus arrested. No, they want to seize him at night when nobody can witness it. That's their plan. There's just one problem. They don't know where Jesus is sleeping in town. They don't know where he's eating. Which is why John eleven fifty seven says, The chief priests and Pharisees gave orders. That if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And we saw last time someone stepped forward to do just that. One of the twelve, Judas, agreed to betray Jesus for money. And Matthew 26, 16 says from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now friends, Jesus is definitely omniscient. He knows what the Sanhedrin's planning. We're going to see in a minute. He sure knows what Judas is up to. But despite all of this conspiracy, the Sanhedrin and Judas are not in control in this situation. Jesus is. And that's why he hasn't told the disciples 
about his plans for the Passover. If he had told them, what would have happened? Judas would have gone right to the Sanhedrin and said, hey, I know where Jesus is going to be tonight. And when they got there, Jesus would have been arrested before he could do any of the other things we're going to see in this passage. But Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. Yes, he will be arrested. He's going to be arrested, though, on his schedule, not on Judas's schedule. And so Jesus builds this complex procedure to ensure he's going to get to have the Passover meal with his disciples in an undisturbed way. Judas will not have a chance to betray him before the appointed time. And so Peter and John go out to obey the master's instructions. Verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I said last time, it's really important in the passion narrative that we remember that Jesus is in control. It's easy as we read about all the terrible things that Jesus endured to think that evil reigns. To think that Jesus is just some victim who is acted upon and not someone who is in control. But friends, that's false. The Sanhedrin has a plan. They say we're going to kill Jesus after the festival of unleavened bread. But Jesus says, I'm going to die on the Passover. Who's right? Jesus is. Because Jesus is in control. In fact, in just a minute, we're going to see, even though Judas is looking for a chance to betray Jesus, it's, it's Jesus who tells Judas, hey, it's time for you to go. And even when it comes to his arrest and death, Jesus is still sovereign. He's going to say in verse 53 of this passage, or of this chapter, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels? Friends, Jesus had so much power and might, he didn't need to submit to this plot if he didn't want to. He's in control. Indeed, he even says in John chapter 10, verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Even over his death, Jesus has total authority. Friends, nothing is going to happen to Jesus that was not, as Acts 2 puts it, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But while men did great evil in killing Jesus, believing friends, we must remember that through that situation, God was working all things together for the good of those who love him, just like he still does today. And so Jesus is going to be betrayed and killed, but it's going to happen on his schedule, under his authority, not under the control of his enemies. But we come now to our second point, which is that the betrayal and death of Jesus happens in fulfillment of the scriptures. Look at verse 20. When it was evening, the sun is set, the new day has begun. It's now the day of the crucifixion, it's Passover. And it begins like this, verse 20, he reclined at table with the twelve. The Passover meal has begun, and who is at this meal? Well, customarily people ate the Passover with their family. But Jesus is gathered with the disciples, and that shouldn't surprise us. Because the bond Jesus has with believers is closer than that of family. Jesus said back in chapter 12, verse 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, as Jesus and the twelve share this meal, we're told they reclined at table. That reflects the way that people ate back then. Uh, in this guest room, there would have been a large U-shaped table that would have sat pretty low to the ground. 
And instead of sitting on chairs, the people eating would have been reclining on cushions around the tables. And they would have been laying on their side, propped up by their left elbow, with their face at the table and their feet farther, uh, stretched pretty much straight back. And, And that's how things are as this dinner begins, this highly symbolic Passover dinner, which is destined to be Jesus' Last Supper. Now, as the meal begins, Jesus and his disciples were eating some, probably some vegetables and some bread that would be dipped into a dish. And in the dish was probably a paste of fruit and nuts. And in the midst of this appetizer, suddenly Jesus makes a surprising statement. Look at verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. This would have stunned everybody else in the room. Eleven of the disciples would have been astonished because of their own great love for Jesus and their brotherhood with everybody else there. Remember, they had been part of Jesus' ministry from the early days in Galilee. And they had left all to follow him. And they'd seen their lives changed. And they'd preached about Jesus. And they'd performed miracles in Jesus' name. And they were glad to be Jesus' disciples. And to be sure, they were flawed in their discipleship. That a few hours they were all going to desert him. But you know they loved Jesus. And they found it incomprehensible that any of them could betray him. And so we read verse 22, they were very sorrowful. But more than just sorrow, the disciples were self-aware enough to have doubts about themselves. Because look how they respond, verse 22. And they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? The disciples don't trust themselves. Even if they cannot fathom how or why, each fears that perhaps in some way he will prove to be the one that Jesus is describing. That's what they ask Jesus about it. But Jesus is not yet ready to reveal everything he knows to everyone at the table. So he just says this, verse 23, he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. You know, the disciples haven't just traveled together over a few years. Here they are sharing Passover together like a family would. They are closer than close. They're eating out of the same dish. And yet Jesus says, it's going to be one of you guys. This is the deepest possible betrayal. And it generates unfathomable guilt. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now one of the biggest ideas in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophetic expectations of the Old Testament. Jesus said in chapter 11, all the prophets and law prophesied. And he says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the one to whom the whole Old Testament points. And what Jesus says here is that the events that he's about to endure, his betrayal, his suffering, his death, they are all prophesied in the Scriptures. A thousand years Before his death, David wrote this in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those would prove to be some of Jesus' final words, reflecting the moment when the wrath of the Father fell on the Son. But you know, more than that, the psalm says that Jesus would be exposed in front of his enemies who would mock him as he died. 
The psalm says, they have pierced my hands and feet. It says that centuries before anybody even came up with crucifixion as a way to kill somebody. The psalm prophesies that Jesus' garments would be gambled over at the foot of the cross as they were. A thousand years beforehand, God revealed all of that. 700 years beforehand, God revealed in Isaiah 53 that God's servant would be viewed by Israel as guilty of a great crime. As stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It prophesied that even though he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, which would come true when he stood silent at his own, def at his own defense at trial. It says that he would be executed as a criminal, and yet in death his grave would be assigned with the rich. And we're going to see in a few weeks that came totally true. Friends, so many details were given centuries in advance about what was going to happen. But not only were Jesus' sufferings and death prophesied, so was his betrayal. David, in Psalm 41, verse 9, wrote these words about one of his treacherous advisors. My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And now we see that also points to Jesus. As one who is indeed eating bread alongside Jesus, even dipping it into the same dish with him, is about to betray Jesus for profit. Indeed, as Jesus says, he must go as it has been written of him. The scriptures predicted it all, and it all must come to pass. And friends, when we see fulfilled prophecy like this, we should have great confidence. Confidence in the reality of God, confidence in his power, confidence in the integrity of the scriptures, confidence in the power of the gospel, confidence in the promises that God has made to his people. If God can give this level of detail in prophecies centuries before they were fulfilled, we can trust that our lives and our destinies are safe in his hand and that he is able to bring to pass all that he has sworn to perform. Friends, Jesus' betrayal and death were the eternal plan and purpose of God. But that does not clear Judas of guilt. Judas cannot say, I didn't have a choice. God made me do it. It was in prophecy. The sovereignty of God does not extinguish human responsibility. Even though it was prophesied, Judas still made a real choice, and he will pay for it forever. And so Jesus says judgment is coming for him. Judgment of such a type, it would have been better for Judas if he had never existed. Non-existence would be preferable to what he is going to experience because Judas is about to commit the most outrageous treason in history and he will suffer the torments of hell forever because of it. Now that's a pretty scary warning, isn't it? You think the other 11 sitting there, you know they were already worried, is it me? You know they'd be really concerned now. And I said a minute ago that 11 of the disciples sitting there were astonished when Jesus says one of them is going to betray him because they all love Jesus and they all cared about each other. But, but you know, Judas was sitting there too. And I think he was probably astonished as well, right? Because he knew he meant to betray Jesus, but he thought his treacherous intentions were secret. And yet here's Jesus saying, one of you is a traitor. Somehow Judas has failed to account for the supernatural power of Jesus that he's seen over and over again in his ministry. But now Jesus is talking about a traitor, and this must have gotten Judas very anxious. What does Jesus know? And what's he going to do about it? 
But when the others asked Jesus, Jesus did not out Judas publicly. And so Judas thinks, well, maybe he doesn't really know. Maybe I can still maintain my charade and blend in. And he sees what the other disciples are doing. They're worried and they're asking about themselves. And so he thinks, well, I better, I better do that too. I've got to maintain this show, right? And so he does. Verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Judas now asked the same question the other 11 have asked, with one exception, and it's a significant one. See, every time in Matthew's gospel, when believers address Jesus, they do so as the 11 did in verse 22. They call him Lord. But when unbelievers address Jesus in this book, they do what Judas does in this verse. They call him teacher. See, Matthew's showing us Judas is an outsider. He is an imposter. Because, friends, to be in a saving relationship with Jesus, it is not enough to confess that he was a wise man or a good prophet or a great teacher. No, we must confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is God in the flesh, that he has the right to rule over our lives. But Judas has rejected that, and he puts now this insincere question to Jesus. But Jesus is not fooled. Jesus knows all. And Jesus now reveals to Judas that, yes, indeed, Judas, you are the traitor. Look at verse 25. He said to him, you have said so. This is the first of three times Jesus will use this phrase on this last day. And this phrase is just a subtle way of affirming what was just asked. Jesus is saying to Judas, yes, you are the traitor. Now, apparently, the other 11 were so lost in their feeling sorry and, and worry that they missed this exchange when it occurred. They don't yet understand this is the traitor. But now Judas knows the game is up. He knows that Jesus knows. And so he should know that somber warning Jesus just gave was intended for him. Jesus is lovingly warning him, this is where your road is going to lead you, Judas. Does that give Judas pause? No. Does it make him repent? Well, he just sits there and he keeps eating. He keeps putting on his false face. And he continues being resolved to betray Jesus. Now, eventually the tension in the room becomes such that John's gospel says Peter motioned to John, this is John 13, 24, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he, it, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And with that, John 13, 30 says, immediately he went out and it was night. Judas goes out into the darkness. And it's not just talking about the darkness of the evening. Judas goes to the outer darkness. Judas damns himself by deciding he is going to go betray Jesus. And as he hurries to the Sanhedrin, he urges them to move at once to go seize Jesus. Because his treachery has been exposed. But this leads us now to our last point, which is the betrayal and death of Jesus. Accomplish the saving plan of God and must be regularly commemorated. Apparently, without Judas now, the Passover meal proceeds. And as it does, each successive course of food calls to mind various aspects of God's great deliverance in the first Passover 1,500 years earlier. Vegetables are dipped into salt water that remind everyone there of the tears of the enslaved Israelites. 
unleavened bread is displayed, reminding the Jews that their ancestors had to flee from Egypt so quickly they didn't even have time to let their bread rise. The Exodus story is recounted. And then comes the time to eat the unleavened bread. And we read Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. This was traditional at the Passover. The bread is broken and distributed and eaten. But now something unexpected happens as Jesus speaks. Verse 26, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Luke tells us a bit more about what Jesus says here. Luke twenty-two nineteen. he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now those words weren't part of the tr traditional Passover meal. This is an innovation. This is something new and it's significant. Because with these words, Jesus reinterprets the action he's just performed. What a moment earlier was a symbol of Israel fleeing from Egypt is now a symbol of Jesus himself and what's going to happen to his body. Now, what is the significance of Jesus' body? The New Testament repeatedly tells us that Jesus is God the Son who took on true humanity. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 10.5 says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. God the Son took on true humanity. He took on a real human body. A body that was about to suffer unimaginable violence. Isaiah prophesied he was going to suffer wounds. The Hebrew word there means something like slashes or stripes, like you would receive from a flogging. We said that the Psalm 22 said his hands and feet would be pierced. Isaiah said he would be cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus' body was about to be torn open and beaten and brutalized and crucified, and stabbed, and killed. He was broken. But understand that this terrible violence that was done upon the person of Jesus is not some meaningless tragedy. You know, there are many violent deaths in our world today. And when we see them, we say, why did this happen? And often the best answer we can come up with is, people are evil. That is not the answer here. Jesus dies a death with a purpose. And we see that when Luke tells us that Jesus said his body is given for you. Who is the you? Well, in that room, it was the 11 Jesus was speaking to. And those disciples would later write the rest of the New Testament. And they tell us that Jesus' words have application to all believers throughout the ages. Believing friends, Jesus let his body face that kind of violence for you and me. Why? Well, we're going to see the answer to that in a moment. But I want you to know here that Jesus doesn't just pass them bread that represents his body. He tells them they've got to do something with it. Matthew 26, 26, he says, take and eat. This bread, this symbol of Jesus' broken body, is to be individually received by each disciple who is to eat it. It's a symbolic act. shows that each of them have a share. They have a portion in what's about to take place. They each have a share of the sacrifice of Jesus' own body that he is making for them. 
That is the symbolism of the bread. But Jesus isn't finished repurposing Passover, the Passover feast yet. Because after this course of bread, the meal would have continued. Other courses would have taken place. The eating of bitter herbs that spoke of Israel's bitter slavery in Egypt. The eating of more bread. And then they came to a portion of the meal involving a cup of wine. But the Passover feast contains four moments when wine is drunk. And each of these cups of wine has symbolism that comes from four promises that God made in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, where God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. There are four promises there that begin with, I will. And each cup of wine in this meal commemorates one of these promises. Now the cup that is drank after the unleavened bread is eaten is the third cup in this meal, which the Jews called the cup of redemption, because it commemorates the promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Now the language of the outstretched arm speaks of God's great power. And of course in the Passover story, this is, this is talking about the idea that God unleashed his furious power upon the Egyptians with plagues, particularly the final plague, to liberate his people from slavery. And that's what this cup was originally supposed to remember. But now Jesus reinterprets it. Look at verse 27 of chapter 26. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now the wine points to the blood of Jesus, which in just a few hours was going to be spilled, as thorns were pushed into his brow, as he was flogged brutally, as he was nailed to the cross, as a spear was plunged into his side. But what is the significance of the outpouring of Jesus' blood? Well, blood is significant in the old law related to sacrifice. Leviticus 17, 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, friends, God has decreed that the just penalty for our sin is death. But God was gracious even to the ancient Israelites to allow them to avoid that penalty as they offered animal sacrifice. And as the animal's blood was spilled on the altar, the Israelite's sin was covered. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But while this sacrificial system was a gracious gift from God for Israel, it was a temporary and imperfect system. Because Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The animal sacrifices were not a permanent solution to our sin problem. That's why they had to be offered year after year and century after century because they could not ultimately remediate sin. But Hebrews 10.12 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's death is infinitely better than the Old Testament sacrifices because by his death on the cross, by the shedding of his blood, Jesus accomplishes what the old sacrifices could not. 
as a true human offered for other humans, he can stand in our place and make a total satisfying sacrifice for all of our sin before God, the Father. And more than that, he frees us from the power of sin. And this is one of the most important areas of, of contact, of connection between Jesus' death and the Passover. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt, and it was a bitter slavery. But friends, we are all born into a far worse slavery. Because Jesus says in John 8, 34, Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. We are all born as slaves of sin. And Ephesians 2 says, as a result, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all born as slaves of our fleshly desires, doing what looks good and what feels good. We're slaves to the deceitful world system that lies to us about how we should think. We're slaves of Satan, joining him in his evil rebellion against God. And as a result, we were God's enemies, heaping up more and more condemnation for ourselves. That is the slavery we were born into. And that is what Jesus has come to redeem us from, to set us free from. And in John 8, 36, he says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the price of that freedom is Jesus' own death. That's why he came. God's angel told Joseph back in chapter 1, You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves. That was the purpose of his life. He came to save his people from our sins. And Jesus understood this. He said in chapter 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And we see here, as Jesus redefines the cup of redemption, that the Passover points to the death of Jesus. That the God who once redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt by stretching out his arm in judgment and killing the firstborn of Egypt, ultimately redeems his people from our truer and greater slavery by stretching out his arm in judgment, by bringing death upon his own uniquely begotten son, that in him our sins might be forgiven, that in him we might have newness of life. Because not only does Jesus free to, or die to free us from bondage to sin, but Jesus says here that his death does something else. As he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Luke 22 tells us Jesus spoke about the new covenant in his blood. What does he mean? What is this new covenant? A covenant's a contract that defines how two parties relate to one another. And throughout the Bible, God made many covenants with people saying, these are our mutual responsibilities. At Mount Sinai, God made such a covenant with all Israel. But near the end of the Old Testament, God said he's going to make a new covenant in the future. A better, an eternal covenant relationship, a new relationship between him and his people, which is called the new covenant. And this is prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And here are the blessings that God promises in this new covenant. He says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the ultimate relationship God offers to humanity, marked by these incredible promises a forgiveness of all of our sin. The, the promise that he, God's not just going to cover our sin like the old sacrifices. He's going to thoroughly cleanse us. Friend, do you hate your sin? The shame, the memories, the power maybe it still has over you. God forgets our sin through the, through the cross because in Colossians 2 it says, He has nailed the, uh, the record of our wrongs to the cross. Jesus paid for our sins and we bear them no more. And more than that, God says, he will change our hearts. We need that because we all begin as these corrupted, fallen creatures. Friends, our sin is not just a decision-making problem. It's not just that we make bad choices. Our problem is that by our very nature, we are ruined and rebellious. But God says he'll make us new. He'll wash us. He'll give us a new heart, a heart that loves and responds to him. More than that, God says he will be our God and we will be his people. We can have a new, a personal, direct relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Our minds can be conformed to his word. We are empowered to know and do his will. He puts his own spirit in us. Friends, this is the promise that God made to the Israelites of the new covenant. And this is the relationship the New Testament says every believer in Jesus Christ enters into. And Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is what his death is purchasing. He who is the one to whom the entire Old Covenant and Old Testament pointed, now brings all of that to its conclusion. And he says, it's time for the new to begin. The new covenant begins. And Jesus says, it begins with his death. And he says this in a very interesting way in Matthew 26. As he says, this is my blood of the covenant. We read earlier from Exodus 24, about the day the Old Covenant was ratified. There's a big animal sacrifice, and Moses took the blood of the sacrifice, and he threw it on the Israelites. I said, this is the blood of the covenant. And it showed them all, hey, I have a part of this, and this is really serious business. In the same way, the new covenant enters into force with death, with the death of Christ. Now, just like Moses threw that blood on the Israelites to say, you're participants in this, Jesus now passes a cup that symbolizes his blood, the cup of redemption. And he tells his people to drink to show they are part of the new covenant. But Jesus doesn't just do this once. This isn't just a one-time thing. Because he also told the disciples, according to Luke, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus commands his followers to regularly reenact this event, this passing of the bread and the cup, as a way to remember him. And in so doing, Jesus creates a new symbolic feast for his people. Just like the Passover was the old symbolic feast about the old deliverance, now Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper, which is to be celebrated regularly by his followers so that we will regularly remember the, the new and the greater deliverance that Jesus has worked for us in his death. Now, there are many things we could say about the observance of communion. And frankly, we've said them many times before. That We preached many sermons in this church about you know, how exactly does communion work and why do we do it the way we do and what about the way Catholics view it and Protestants. And I'm not going to get into all of that stuff right now. What I want us to ponder is the fact that Jesus gave us this one practice 
to do again and again as part of our corporate worship. We take the bread and we drink the cup. And he tells us we need to do this to remember him. Isn't that a sad commentary on us, friends? That if Jesus hadn't given us this ordinance of communion, he knew we would forget. That we would forget what is truly of first importance. That we would forget what must always be at the heart of the church. Isn't it easy for us to forget the death of Christ? To focus on other things in our lives. Oh, I'm busy with work, or I'm busy with my family, or, you know, I'm busy with my free time. Maybe some of us never focus any time on Christ, except occasionally we may show up to church on Sunday and give God a few minutes of our waking energy. And even then, do we ever really stop and come face to face with the reality that Jesus died because of the evils in my life or yours? Maybe for others of us, we do try to prioritize spiritual things. And yet, even then, how easy is it for first things to be lost in the shuffle? How easy it is to congratulate ourselves on how well we're doing with our spiritual disciplines or our obedience to this command or that. How easy it is to look down on other people who maybe don't evidence the same priorities that we have or who have different views about secondary issues of importance and we say, oh, well, they're so far off base. And friends, when we do that, we have forgotten what's really central. Because Christianity isn't about us getting opportunities to feel spiritually elite. No, what is central to our faith is that Jesus died because we're sinners. Even corporately in the church, it's so easy to be busy serving and keeping the operation going. So easy to make everything about our community life. So easy for me to prepare a sermon and at the end say, hey, I haven't even talked about the gospel. It's so easy even in the midst of a worship service to forget the primacy of the death of Christ. But friends, the taking of communion checks against all that. Because if we come to the Lord's table and we do what Jesus asks us to do, everything else will fall into proper perspective. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised. That is what is of first importance. Jesus gave his body and blood because each of us is a sinner who deserved to spend eternity in hell, and he died to rescue us. But friend, when we take communion, we don't just merely remember that truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is also a corporate act of proclamation. It is a declaration to the world and to one another here that Jesus has died for us. And it's also a corporate act of proclamation that Christ will come again. Friends, we won't take communion forever. We only have this feast until Jesus comes back, and then we get a far better feast. And that's the feast Jesus mentions in our final verse, verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And Jesus redefined the third cup of the Passover. There was a fourth cup which was to be drunk, which commemorated God's promise that I will take you as my people. But Jesus says, I'm not going to drink that one right now, not until he comes back. 
Not till the kingdom comes in its fullness. Not until the messianic banquet. When indeed he will be there with his people. And then he will drink the cup of praise as we endlessly rejoice in his presence as history ends. But to wrap this up, I want to say to you today, if you don't know Christ, I want you to think about your life. Sin has a hold on you. You might not see it, but you are enslaved to your urges and your desires. You are trapped in endless rebellion and you are on a collision course with God's wrath. But Jesus lovingly died the worst death imaginable to set you free. Today I want you to think about Jesus' willingness to suffer these horrors to liberate you. Now when we take communion in a few minutes, if, you don't, if you're not a believer, do not participate. But watch what the believers in this room do. Because this is our proclamation to you. Not that we are some spiritual elite. Not that we are holier than now. But that we're just like you. We were ruined sinners deserving of hell. But... We've been rescued by Jesus. And I pray that as you watch that, God would give you the grace to see that you should turn from your, your life of sin and trust Christ. That is the only way of salvation. He is God and man. He has died and risen. But today, if you are a believer, I want to challenge you to shake off the slumber of forgetfulness that so easily ensnares us. It is so easy to take the bread and cup in a perfunctory way. But instead, let it do its work today. Let it, let it be a mirror for us to consider. Who was I? A vile sinner. And how did that change? Because God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus to die a wretched death to save me and you so that we would be his people and that he might shower us with glorious blessings as our God. So may we rejoice in that and commemorate that today as we celebrate this feast together.